Cholera is an excruciating infectious disease with a rapid onset, killing victims within hours of a positive case. Like flipping a coin for your life, an untreated case is offered a 50% chance of survival. In the summer of 1854, a deadly cholera outbreak unleashed terror in London. Physician John Snow, amongst the panic, fearlessly challenged the dominant miasma, or bad air theory, using mapping and data analysis to locate the spread of the disease to a single contaminated water pump. By removing the pump's handle, he helped curb the outbreak and paved the way for modern epidemiology and the germ theory of disease. Despite dying four years later in 1858, Snow's work endures, continuing to inspire the heroes of healthcare innovation today. But who are the modern-day John Snows, driving forward new ideas in healthcare, helping to fight back against the major diseases of our age, cancer, Alzheimer's, and others? And what new tools and technologies will transform human health in the years to come? I'm Clara Bertrand, your host for Founding Conversation, a podcast exploring new ideas and global trends from Pictet Group, one of Europe's leading independent investment managers. In this episode, we take a deep dive into the future of health innovation. Joining us are Sangeeta Bahatia, cancer researcher, MIT professor, and biotech entrepreneur, Lydia Howater, senior investment manager at Big Data Asset Management, and David Braga Malta. Principal Private Equity Thematic Health of Pictet Alternative Advisors. The moderator of the conversation is Huberta Scopes. So, I'm going to start with a really broad question to you, uh, Sangeeta. Can you give us an overview of what's happened recently in in the biotech space? What are the, in your view, what are the latest amazing breakthroughs? And where do you see uh, upcoming progress? I think you know the three things that are prominently on my radar are one, what we call convergence science, uh, which is the integration of things like nanotechnology and microtechnology and biology, and actually COVID is a great example where mRNA vaccines were enabled by packaging in lipid nanoparticles. So really, it's you know two decades of work from two different fields coming together, kind of in that moment to really enable the rapid delivery of COVID vaccines. So this is a type of science that's becoming more and more popular. You're seeing educational institutions, investment arms, lots of people thinking about this kind of interdisciplinarity. So that's one. The second is the coming of age, really, of so-called genetic medicines. So mRNA is, of course, one category, but also there's genome editing, right? So there's CRISPR, there's base editing, there's now we're inserting, we're writing into the genome um, long pieces of DNA. Um, and, and you see that really happening. There are um, approvals that are going to be imminent in diseases like sickle cell disease, which is a genetic disease. Um, and, and these are things that, you know, we learned about in medical school a long, long time ago. We've known those defects for a long time, and we, I think, finally have the tools to try and intervene. So convergence, genetic medicines, and then the last, I think, big trend, at least in my world, is data, right? Big data, compute power, AI, 
um, you know, it's, it's changing all of our worlds and it's, you know, I think it's, it's rocking the world of biotech as well. It's specifically in my world, AI is being brought to bear off, for example, on early cancer detection. So most of the mammograms at the Mass General right now are actually read uh, by an AI algorithm um, and can help call back patients who need to be seen sooner. That's being routinely implemented. And the other place that you see the importance of data is things like wearables, right? So much data coming off of our bodies. Like, what does that, what does that help us anticipate and so-called intercept in disease progression? Uh, how do we personalize those and democratize those? Super fascinating. David, I'd like to ask you, you know, when you think about some of the trends that Sankita just mentioned, or also, you know, some of the other areas that you're looking at, let, let's start with a big one. Let's start with cancer. I know that having spoken in the past with some of the executives at Moderna, that, you know, they actually initially felt mRNA would be really an answer for cancer. What do you see in this, in this space, you know, in, in cancer in general that might be promising? It's, it's a very fascinating world uh, in, in oncology and seeing actually the convergence of all of these trends that Sangita was, was talking about coming to, to play. Uh, of course, mRNA is playing a role. I think we had the first good set of positive data coming out of the combination of mRNA uh, vaccination, if I can put it like that. So education of the immune system towards a, a specific goal with products that are actually already in the market and tackle cancer in different manners, correct? So this idea uh, that we need to combine and to converge different techniques into uh, a single disease is clearly played in cancer. Cancer is actually not one thing. It's not an homogeneous bulb that grows under your arm or, or elsewhere in your body. Actually, is a completely diverse ecosystem uh, that is created inside your body. And to really remove it, you actually need to tackle with as many guns as you can bring and as many different guns as you can bring in order to kind of eliminate all of these subsets of cancer there that make the, the single uh, large mass that you, that you observe. The second one uh, is really, really clear. We need to intervene as early as possible. <laughs> and the example for, for Mass General um, is, is clear. So the sooner you can get a patient to get a deeper evaluation, to get to a proper diagnosis and to the identification of the type of cancer that it has, what is the composition of this cancer? is fundamental. So the early we get to treat that patient, the better the outcomes are for that patient. And data there is critical. I think there is no other way besides large data for us to be able to intervene faster. And of course, we saw some up and comings with large data sets and companies like Grail getting approval now on hold, but we'll get there uh, at some point. But there are finer things on the routine exams that we were doing anyhow to patients. Is there a way to extract more out of the data sets that hospitals actually have in their databases? Um, and that should be useful to allow us to intervene earlier. Fascinating. Now, Lydia, for your work that you're in, you're, you're often looking at the, you know, the larger companies, the larger pharma companies, the larger biotech companies. I assume they don't have that much interest at the moment in the data topic because it would uh, not necessarily lead to you know, additional medicines. But what is their view on that? Yeah, actually, data has been a word that has come up more and more. And even this JP Morgan, which is the biggest healthcare conference people have been talking about, AI and data nonstop, basically. And it's been used a lot to basically look at large population genome sequencing efforts where you have sequences for a lot of people and you try to find out the pathologies, how, how diseases work, if there's new angles, how you can treat diseases. 
and, and that's only possible with AI, obviously, because that's so much data that no single person could make sense of it. But with AI that is so good at detecting patterns, um, you're actually trying to find new disease targets. More and more companies are also doing uh, in silico work to, to do drug design in a computer together with a wet lab. So you have kind of this iterative process where you, you design a drug in silico, you test it out in the lab, you, do, you find out what works, what doesn't, you go back to the computer and you have this iterative process that should accelerate your drug development. So data is really important. And, and you also have some big companies in this space of liquid biopsy for cancer detection. Um, currently, the way that is used is more on checking if a patient is responding to treatment, if they have recurrence of tumors. Um, you monitor that. Sankita, if we look ahead five or 10 years, do you, are, you, are you optimistic that mankind will be a lot further down the road in terms of uh, you know, tackling this, this, this disease that has been, at least you know, in our lifetime, defining for, for many of us in our families? Yeah, so I would say two things. I'm I'm definitely optimistic, and um, you know, if you look at the survival curves of cancer, it is growing worldwide, and it is a scary disease, and we will all be touched by it. But the survival rates for many tumor types have improved, you know, in our lifetime. In the U.S., you know, there's a presidential target for reduced mortality in a certain number of years, and so I think it's all very promising. I think. We have to remember to be intentional about the technologies that we develop and inclusive in terms of addressing patient populations that are in low resource settings. Um, you know, mm -hmm. it's a lot of the things that we're talking about are really not going to be available to Super everyone expensive. who needs them. So, so I think it's important that we make the advances, but it's also important that we think about those constraints so that they could touch the most patients. I want to move on to another subject that's been in the media a lot in the last couple of years, and that's this topic of superbugs, right? So really strains of bacteria that are really pretty much immune to, to current antibiotics. And uh, I wonder to what degree biotech has an answer to that. And Lydia, I wanted to ask you that first, because I think, you know, the broader topic of uh, immunology also falls under this, but maybe you can weigh in on that. Yeah, you know, antibiotic resistance bugs are really like a slow rolling epidemic and it is a huge burden of disease. I think it's up to one to five million people. That's uh, is the estimate die globally due to um, antibiotic resistance. And it's really the overuse of antibiotic in, in food production that has been driving it. Also in medicine, people have been overusing these antibiotics. And the, the really heartbreaking part about this is that it's just not a profitable business model. And there were a couple of biotech companies in the last five years that I can just remember off the top of my head. It was Tetraphase, Sempra, Acheogen. They all went bust. They had novel um, antibiotics. They all went bankrupt. Because the problem with antibiotics is really that when you have a novel antibiotic, you don't want to use it too much because you don't want to breed more resistance and, and also, um, these companies were paid on volume. So, so basically, uh, it, it was just not a very profitable business. So basically, the companies failed because you don't want to overuse the antibiotic. Otherwise, there will be resistance. And so there's no mass manufacturing. There's no mass selling. And as a result, there's no mass profits. And then these companies fail. Are there models that people are thinking about in terms of how to, how to overcome that? 
The easiest model that people came up with is basically the Netflix model. Basically, you, you, you buy a subscription for antibiotics. And so you pay not on volume, but you pay a fixed fee for access as a health institute. And so basically companies have um, visibility on the profits that they, they're going to make that should incentivize people to jump into it. And there is legislation actually in the U.S. Congress that's been floating around, I think, for a decade. It's called the Pasteur Act. And that would actually include some of that novel business model of paying for these antibiotics as a subscription model. And it, it seems like in the past uh, year or so that the, the support has been increasing. Um, it's a bipartisan bill, but we will have to see if, if Congress actually <laughs> is functional enough to, to bring that through. They've been testing it as well in, in the, in the UK, but the problem there is just with their spending, um, appetite. It's not enough to incentivize big pharma and, and biotech to go into this field. And also for venture capitalists, it's just not been something that they can responsibly put the capital to work in. So it's been up to, I don't know, Bill and Melinda Gates and, and some uh, nonprofits and academia to work on this. But there's just not enough apparatus behind it to actually develop novel technologies. And that's what we need. We don't just need the new antibiotic. We need new technologies that maybe circumvent a bit this resistance mechanism. And people are w working on things like phages, which are kind of like viruses that infect um, bacteria that could be something that in the future might fight the, these diseases, but it's really it's really heartbreaking. It's something we need as a society to come together to fix the working mechanism and the business model of antibiotics. Yeah, um, and maybe just to add, I think um, if we use the cancer example also in the superbug environment, we can even think about better diagnostics. So we've been working on a project which you know I'm sad to say is not going to be a money maker, but we're working on it anyway. <laughs> which is in a single point of contact with a patient that has a respiratory infection, just figuring out if they have viral pneumonia or bacterial pneumonia. And if you're able to do that, especially in a low resource setting where you only have one touch point with the patient, that physician can decide, do I put this patient on antibiotics or not, right? And that will be an incredibly important tool for antibiotic stewardship and preventing overuse. But like, just to say, like, I'm not going to start a company on the idea. It's a great invention. Right now, I'm, you know, I, I have uh, philanthropic support for it. And, you know, I have no idea how I'm going to get it out into the world. But we're just going to keep going um, because I think it could change the, the game. But right now, there aren't incentives to make that. I can completely actually relate personally because uh, over Christmas, I didn't have pneumonia, but I had I went to a physician because I was really not feeling well. And he had exactly that issue. He said, I'm not sure if it's bacterial or if it's viral. He did two tests, a blood test, uh, and, and he did uh, you know, the test that they did for COVID. And uh, he said, hmm, I still don't know. But it looks like it's bacterial, so I'm going to give you antibiotics. Yeah. And uh, I think, yeah, I mean, for sure, if, if that can be tackled, uh, that, that I'm certain would help. Sangeeta, let's move on to one more topic that you've done a lot of work on and that I think is fascinating. Uh, artificial organs, artificial tissues. I mean, I, I was fascinated as a kid with the Jarvik heart, the artificial heart, which has been around for a while. But what are there in terms of new breakthroughs uh, in this area? Yeah, it, it's an exciting area. I mean, I think um, it, it the slice of technology that I'm most interested in is the one where we think about kind of replacing body parts with living cells, right? So cells are the medicine. And you know, to David's earlier point, this is something that has been 
thought about for a long, long time. You know, there's a seminal paper in the 1990s written by Bob Langer where he talked about tissue engineering, right? Taking cells and mixing them with materials and making an artificial organ that you could implant when you didn't have a transplant available. Um, and that dream is is still out there and now finally happening. There's like some interesting stories about a couple of investment cycles. <laughs> the first one didn't hit and now it's coming back. And I would say, you know, one of the leaders has been uh, Doug Melton's work where he takes induced pluripotent stem cells. So you take a skin biopsy, you reprogram those cells into stem cells. Then in the lab, you grow them into beta cells, which are the cell in your pancreas that can make insulin in response to blood sugar changes. Um, and you deliver those cells as a therapy. Um, and that's now happening. They are um, in trials in patients. And they help to regenerate the, the existing pancreas or something new develops? They just replace the function. So the, the existing pan pancreas is, is for them in, in this version of the technology, maybe it will get like offloaded, maybe it will get a little bit helped because you're, you're given, but mm -hmm. it's really that these cells will now do the work of the pancreas. Um, and then there, I work on the liver. So we do that with the functional cell of the liver. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's a number of these examples where we're trying to replace organs um, with living cells. How far are we from that becoming a reality? Um, and that actually may lead us to the, to the question that I'll have later on about uh, approvals and, and regulators and how, how complicated that is. Yeah, so I would say it's happening. It's, it's happening right now. It's, it's, there will be approved medicines in the next, let's say, five years in this category for sure. Let's move on to one that I'm certain has affected a lot of the listeners and, and, or their families, uh, and that's Alzheimer's. Now, that is, as is, is, is you know, you know, a common form of, of dementia. And there has been some medical progress on that recently, but not without controversy. So Lydia, could you describe uh, what happened? And uh, this will lead me maybe to just, you know, one or two questions on the topic of, of challenges uh, that are out there in the biotech space. But maybe you can describe what happened with uh, with Biogen and, uh, and their recent uh, Alzheimer's drug, the first time actually that one was approved. Maybe to back up a little bit. So the, the drug that they had, aducanumab, is an antibody against A-beta. And A-beta is, is the, the basically the plaques that accumulate in the brain in, in patients with Alzheimer's. And it was never 100% clear whether these plaques are a kind of a symptom or a cause of the disease. There was always like a couple of camps, the ones that say A-beta is everything, and the other ones that would say, no, this is just a, um, a consequence of the disease. And over the years, over the decades, we've had a lot of A-beta antibodies fail in the clinic. Um, they never showed any benefit on cognition, which is what you want to see, right? So these patients still decline. Um, people try to, to develop them earlier and earlier. So the patients that they enroll now, they have like very mild cognitive impairments. So you try to really catch them early in the disease progression when it's not the, the brain is not basically degenerated um, too much already. And so a couple of years back, Biogen had this very exciting set of data coming up in, in, in the medical world with their antibody aducanumab that really showed that it clears these plaques from the, from the brain. Um, it wasn't without safety issues. Uh, people actually had some weird imaging anomalies. Uh, they had some um, edema swelling in the brain that some people were concerned about, but at least it, it did clear these plaques out. And the company then started, they, they were running two phase three trials, so confirmatory trials. 
turned out, basically first they announced that they discontinued the trials because it, it failed in an interim look. Then they reanalyzed the data and they were saying, well, no, we're actually going to file it anyways, because it, it seems like if we look at it in a certain way, it, it worked. Like one of the trials was positive. The other one was kind of positive if you slice it the right way. And it was a big controversy um, because the FDA then decided to uh, approve this drug. And what turns out, the problem there is that um, the, the patients that have Alzheimer's, they are 65 and older, probably, uh, quite likely. So these patients are paid for by the government uh, insurance, which is Medicare. And it turned out that um, Medicare said, no, actually, the, the data is not convincing. It's too expensive. We're not going to cover this. So the whole launch of this product was basically a, a full disaster. Doctors didn't want to prescribe it. Insurances didn't want to cover it. But the but FDA Biogen, had approved it, and I think that that was the odd thing, right? That this is for the first that time was the odd a thing. drug. There was some weird uh, thing going on as well with the company having some private meetings with top officials at the FDA, which people still are looking into. So the whole saga of aducanumab was with a lot of hairs, let's just put it that way. But Biotech, uh, Biogen had a back backup plan. Um, they had a partner in ASI, that had a second A-beta antibody that was not entirely the same as aducanumab, had a bit of different properties. And big surprise, they had data and it actually looks quite legitimate. The endpoints were looking, all of them in the same direction. The statistics looks very clear, very nice p-values, which people like. So meaning that the effect is, is, is something real. It's not just a fluke, it's real. And so that seems to be something that people are going not to know, or the FDA is going to approve, and CMS, which is the Medicare, is going to cover for. Um, so we now, after all this bit back and forth, we have an A-beta antibody that will hit the market, and that patients can hopefully derive benefit from. This is another really interesting area where we need better diagnostics, because if we now have therapies or for patients where the gold standard is a PET scan, right, super expensive, not available to everybody, you know, how are we going to onboard, uh, how are we going to pick patients who, who, who get this medicine? So there's now a brimming market of Alzheimer's diagnostics, liquid biopsy, that's going to be like the next wave of diagnostic technologies, a bunch of little companies in that area. So again, a lot happening actually in the diagnostic space of, of Alzheimer. Although even if you know early, there's probably not much that you can do other than diet at the moment and, and change lifestyle, right? Uh, and potentially this drug that's coming uh, from Biogen. Yeah, I mean, I think the conversation with Alzheimer's reminds me, I work in the, the liver disease area of, of the conversation in NASH, right, which is a, a fibrotic disease of fatty liver. Um, and it, the conversation is when there are medicines that are approved, they're going to have a certain price tag. And how are we going to know who to put them on? Um, and so both of these things, actually, if you look at even like osteoporosis drugs, historically, osteoporosis drugs drove the bone density measurements, because until you have a therapeutic driver, nobody needs to be stratified. And all of a sudden, when you have one that looks like it's on the on the verge of being approved, and everyone says like, oh my gosh, we need a diagnostic. It's the same for like rare diseases. As soon as there's a therapy on the market, people start actually screening um, for, for these diseases and you find the patients and you find usually a lot more than you thought there were. It's not just a question of early intervention, it's a question of intervention uh, to begin with, correct? Because it's not easy to diagnose a lot of these diseases and incentives, again, were not there for, for these tools to be developed. 
and payers, right? People are, you're, somebody needs to, there's going to be a threshold for that. So, Well, you mentioned this earlier, Sangeeta, and maybe I, I just want to pick your brain on this in terms of some of the criticism that, that, that these, should I say, modern or new medicines have, have gotten is that some of the treatments are incredibly expensive. Some of them are covered by... Uh, by Medicare, Medicaid, or the insurance providers, or not. I think the, there's an interesting case study at the moment with the with with some obesity drugs that, uh, uh, and whether or not obesity is recognized as, as a disease or not. What's your view in general on, on on that topic of fairness and 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 who has access and and how do we how do we deal with that? Yeah, I mean, I think I have I have two different thoughts that I don't think are conflicting, at least not in my head. But one of them is a just a pro innovation perspective, which is. Innovation is expensive and you need incentives. And if you look at every major, we're talking about medicine today, every major medical advance, it was expensive when it started. It was on patent for a while, right? And then the patent rolled off and then those medicines are really inexpensive and widely distributed. So, you know, take the statins, the cholesterol lowering medicines as a great example of that. And I am pretty bought in on that model because I'm sitting now in biotech and pharmaceutical boardrooms seeing that if there were not the price points that we to start with, there's no way that you could invest. You couldn't stand up these organizations and invest. I mean, Vertex was 25 years before they made a profit, right? Like they, you can't do that unless there's something on the other end. That's the way our society works. So that's one thought. I am a pro innovation. I think things have to start at price points that can be supported by profitable companies, but it's not forever. And I think people need to remember that it's not forever. You're going to have that invent once you can't undo the invention. Once you get it, you get it forever. The other thing is, I think we do have to be an intentional about our inventions and we have to recognize the use cases that exist in resource poor settings. And so that I think should be a very early conversation and one that I have with my students about like, let's imagine like, let's invent for that world as well as you know, the mass general. That's why I think the, the, the actually the investment in antibiotics and in vaccines should really be something that is profitable um, for these pharma companies, because those deaths and those disease burdens actually affect a lot of the developing world. So you can actually kind of fund the developing world through the developed world. So we pay a lot for these drugs for 10, 15 years. But after that, it's infrastructure. And we can supply those drugs for more developing markets at a much lower cost. And that's what we actually should be doing because those indications really affect millions of people as opposed to maybe a super rare cancer or a super rare disease, which is, is great for these patients. But it should not be the only focus to go into more and more small populations, which has been, unfortunately, the, the trend um, in the industry. And I would add there is a third wave behind all of this, which is first you do the breakthrough invention. It's the complex, expensive, and then you come with the normal tools of engineering. Can we make it cheaper? Can we make it faster? And you apply a different mindset, which is not as disruptive as the first one was, but is actually enabling access. Those are hopeful answers, and I think that's a, that's a positive development that you can say, look, we have to put the innovation in that over time we should be able to get there, that at least for, for the broad-based diseases that it becomes more affordable and, and affordable for everyone. Maybe to close, uh, I'd like to ask all of you to just share with me, because you're all so passionate about the topic and, and uh, obviously, you know, uh, extremely well-versed in it. How did, you, how did you get into it? How did you, you know, get into studying what you studied, Lydia? Why don't we start with you? 
Um, for me, it was always two passions. It was either music or biotech. Um, I was uh, at a very young age. I was subscribed to Science Magazine. It was also uh, always biology that, that that did it for me. And so I decided to to do music on the side and 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 study biology um, or biochemistry. And then systems biology. Um, and then it was quite random how I got into the investment world um, because I was doing my master's in a lab that was doing mass spectrometry. Um, so we were using these mass spectrometers by um, Agilent and Thermo Fisher. And at one time there was like two investment managers coming to our lab and they were asking all these questions about these machines. And I was like super intrigued. Like, why are these finance dudes <laughs> basically coming to our lab? So I applied for an internship and then that's how I got my foot into investing and then got hired for the biotech uh, team at a Swiss biotech manager. David, how about you? Uh, me was chemistry that started. I really liked chemistry, but then I was bored about how to use chemistry. So it was petrochemical, correct? What I was studying. And then I found the convergence between biology and chemistry because our body is chemistry. Water reactions to a certain point. And then led to, can we use this to help human conditions, correct? Can we use this knowledge about chemistry and biology to start it? Uh, but then uh, I think for me, the shift towards being on the biotech side of, of this equation was when I went to, to Cambridge and I was embedded into an ecosystem that frankly back then was very rare uh, in Europe, um, where creating companies, exploring your scientific discoveries towards an effective and implementable goal towards humanity was well perceived. I think in, back then in academia in Europe, there was some purity effect or elo about not dealing with the business world, correct? Uh, you were not a good scientist if you were making money otherwise with your discoveries. That, of course, did not exist in uh, in Cambridge and in, in the biotech world. And that actually how we uh, started the first company out of some discoveries that then failed. And then we tried again. And, and then I shift towards the other side of the table towards towards investing. Amazing. And Sangeeta, let's end on uh, on your story. I was actually a dancer growing up um, and um, and kept it as, as a hobby uh, and went into engineering. And during my PhD, I fell in love with the human body, finished my medical degree. So I became kind of bilingual and then became an academic and realized that publishing papers is amazing. Graduating students is fantastic, but it doesn't actually get your invention to patients. Um, and so I became... A reluctant entrepreneur because <laughs> I realized <laughs> I needed to um, to take those inventions as the next step to be able to um, have them kind of dock into the ecosystem. So that's kind of how I came into it. But I but I also think I read somewhere that uh, your father took you to MIT when you were growing up and uh, showed you. I'm not sure exactly what it was. Um, I think it was a, a question. yeah. No, that that's right. So my dad's an engineer, and he was the one who said you should be an engineer. He brought me to MIT where they were using focused ultrasound for tumor hypothermia, which is an old idea. So this was the 80s. Um, and I, I actually happened to be working on that again, which is fascinating. Um, and I, that captured my imagination that engineering could be useful in medicine. And he um, is a serial entrepreneur. So when I, I disappointed him and told him I was going to become an academic, he said, OK, when will you start your first company? Um, not not a company, your first company. <laughs> so I was um, I was definitely raised uh, in this in this vein. Super. Well, thank you so much to all of you. Uh, it's been fascinating for me. As I said, I think I could have talked for much longer, but um, I think we covered a lot of ground. So um, thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. Great conversation. Thank you. It was great having this discussion. 
Thank you. I really enjoyed our conversation. This episode of Founding Conversations starred Sangeeta Bahatia, Lydia Howater, and David Braga Malta. The moderator was Hubertus Kulps. The show is a collaboration between PICTE, one of Europe's leading wealth and asset managers, and How to Academy, London's leading public forum for sharing big thinking. The executive producers are me, Clara Bertrand, and Vasily Christodoulou. We have help from Niall Moran and Nicole Wong. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.